I want to start with the hypothetical to get you thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There should be a slide that comes up. Imagine two Christians move to Orange for work. Let's call them Bill and Ben. And they live in a share house together. Bill is the organized one. I guess he's the one who's had a trim of his beard. Um, he's the organized one, so it's his name on the lease. It's his, it, he's the one who put up the rental deposit. The utilities are in his name. But that's okay, because his mate Ben, the guy with the impressive beard, um, he's a good friend. They go to church together. They're in Bible study together. Ben is the kind of guy that you can trust. That is, until you can't. Ben's rent is on time for the first few months, but six months into living together, uh, he's a month behind. And then 12 months later, he doesn't seem to be paying rent at all. He's kind of avoiding Bill. And so Bill, out of Christian love, has used up all of his life savings to keep Ben in this house uh, and to keep the house going. But now Bill's life savings has run out and Bill doesn't know what to do. Bill's non-Christian parents and his work colleagues tell Bill that he could, should kick Ben out and she should take the matter to court so he can get his life savings back. They say, this is the only way to resolve the matter. This is what you have to do. And maybe you agree. Maybe you've been in this position before. But it's not just a hypothetical like Bill and Ben. What about when a Christian employee has a dispute with a Christian boss? What about when Christian siblings can't figure out how to divide up mum and dad's inheritance after they've passed away? Or a business partnership? What happens when two Christians go into business and then the relationship turns sour and they have to split? Is the only way to resolve these matters through the courts? Uh, if you're a Christian here tonight, you may have wondered this because you might be um, in a dispute with another Christian at church. Or you might not be a Christian, but you've thought about this because all you see in the newspaper and all you see on TV is Christians who take one another to court. So what should we do? Uh, Paul thinks very differently from the world. Did you notice that as we read the passage? If we think that the only way to resolve these matters is through the court, Paul says something different. You know, as 21st century rugged individualists, we promote our own rights and status and self-interests above everything else. But tonight, we see that we have been transformed by Jesus. God has made us holy through Jesus and calls us to live a holy life. And so therefore, we can settle disputes within the family of God, within the church. But it also means we need to take sin seriously. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. And tonight we're in 1 Corinthians, which was originally a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a young church in the ancient city of Corinth. The city of Corinth was renowned for three things, its status, its self-promotion, and its self-rights. And so the Christians who were in this city had all these cultural assumptions in their mind, and they brought them along to church, and it led them to pride and arrogance, like a big puffed up balloon. They are filled with pride and arrogance. 
and it's caused a bunch of problems in this church. And so Paul writes to the church and he reminds them that in the cross of Christ is the power and wisdom of God. And he applies the power and wisdom of God to all these issues that they're having. And so this week, it's two Christians who take each other to court. Now, two points of clarification I need to say at the beginning. Paul is not against the legal system. Uh, If you're someone who likes to take notes, write down Romans 13 and go home and read it tonight. And you'd see that Paul actually encourages Christians to submit to local authorities. And when they do the right thing, they uphold God's justice. Second thing is Paul is not addressing criminal matters, but trivial cases. And I want to be really clear about this because, sadly, in the past, churches have used passages like this to try and cover up criminal activity, to cover up abuse, and in particular, against women and children and vulnerable people. And so from the outset, I want to say that the Bible says that's never okay. Domestic violence, child abuse, or even sexual violence are criminal matters, and they need to be brought into the light and handed over to the authorities. And so this passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 7, is talking about trivial matters between Christians The language of being wronged and cheated here suggests that it has to do with money, possibly even property disputes. And so to address this, Paul asks three questions. He says, verse 2, don't you know the Lord's people will judge the world? Verse 7, why not rather be wronged? And verse 9, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? And so tonight we are going to answer those three questions. Let's look at the first. Don't you know that you will judge the world? Have a look at verse 1 with me. Paul says, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? And how much more the things of this life? Paul says, how dare you take a brother or sister in Christ, someone else in the church family to court because it breaches Christian fellowship. Now remember, the Corinthians justice system is a Roman justice system. This is what one historian had to say. If we go to the next slide, thanks. A guy called Peter, no, next one, Peter Garnsey describes it as this. The principal criterion, oh, if we go to the next slide, Thank you. The principal criterion for legal privilege in the eyes of the Romans was dignitas. It's a Greek word, opposite of humilitas, which means humility. Dignitas, that is, the honour derived from power, style of life, sorry, style of life and wealth. You see, the Roman, in the Roman world, The plaintiff and the defendant in courts did not have equal rights. And the aim of an ancient lawsuit was the one, uh, was an assault on the other person's character. Therefore, it was the one with the greater status, the greater power, the greater wealth who would win, and they would bring justice at the expense of the other person. Now, we've already seen this in 1 Corinthians. This um, dignitas has led to Christian, sorry, the Corinthians being obsessed with their status, their self-promotion, their self-rights. 
If we go to the next slide, in chapter 4, verse 8, this is how Paul sums up the Corinthian church. He says, Already you have what you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. Now, Paul is being tongue-in-cheek here. He's just really um, reflecting back what they think of themselves. That is, they consider themselves kings because they've begun to reign. They have everything they want. They're rich. They have status. They have power. And they put their rights above the rights of others. And so Christian brothers take one another to court so that they would see, receive justice in the eyes of the world. And they're doing it at the expense of a brother or sister in Christ. And so Paul asks them a question. Verse 2, he says, Do you not know that you will judge the world? Which is a really good question. I mean, did you know that you were going to judge the world? I mean, when I became a Christian, that wasn't in the job description. Um, Judging my next-door neighbour. I mean, you might not like your next-door neighbour and you think it's kind of nice that you'll judge him, but um, that's probably a separate issue. Uh, Paul here in saying that we will judge the world and angels, is drawing on a significant Old Testament reference. If we go to the next slide, he's talking about Daniel chapter 7, and it describes God's people, or the saints, who will share in God's kingdom, will also share his judgment as well. That is, the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the saints of the Most High. Now, Paul, Paul's point is not who you get to judge and how it will happen, but he's speaking about our identity. Our identity as God's people who have been transformed by Jesus Christ. That is, we are members of God's kingdom and we share in the judgment of God. And so if we share in such a significant judgment in the future, then surely, surely we're able to figure out things amongst ourselves and not take one another to court. Paul says, start preparing for that day by making just and judge judgments in your church family today. And Paul says, the fact that it's happening, it's actually to their shame. Have a look at verse 5. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is no one among you wise enough to judge the dispute between believers, but instead one brother takes another to court and this is in front of unbelievers. Paul has two concerns here. First, his concern is for the outsider. That is, as people are taken along to court, he's concerned about what the world will think of Jesus and his church as two people within God's family go to the courts. But there's also a deeper reason, a deeper concern. That is, that they are taking Uh, disputes before people who will judge with the wisdom of the world. Have a look at the character of those who will judge in verse 1. That is, they are ungodly. Verse 4, they are those who will scorn and persecute the church. They're the ones who are given the right to judge. Verse 5, they take disputes among believers in front of unbelievers. Verse 5, this is why it's to their shame Verse 7, this is why they have already been defeated because they are taking matters within God's family to the wisdom of the world. You see, 1 Corinthians verse 2 reminds us that God 
has made us holy through Jesus Christ. And he set us apart. He has called us to live a holy life. But when one another, when God's people take one another to court, they're living not by the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of the world for the sake of their own rights and for the sake of their own glory. Seeking worldly justice, well, it shows that they've lost faith in their church family and it shows that they've lost faith in the justice of God. So, friends, can I ask you, when you have an argument with another Christian, when you need to settle a dispute, would you rather the world help you or God's people help you? I take it the answer to that question is whoever agrees with me more. Yeah? I mean, in our desire to be right, we often look to whoever agrees with me and whoever is on my side, and they will support me. Uh, reminds me of Murph Hughes. Um, bear with me for the uninformed or those under 20. Murph Hughes was one of the greatest Australian cricket players. Could we go to the next slide? Um, what Merv was really famous for was in between overs, he'd go down to the metal um, fences, remember when they used to be metal, and he would do stretches and everyone would join in. I was lucky enough as a child, my dad took me along to a cricket match when I was very, very small and I got to participate in one of these moments. Merv would go down there and he'd start stretching out and the crowd would stretch out as well. He'd start to do some warm-ups and the crowd would do warm-ups as well. It was our way of saying, Merv, we've got your back. We support you. You're one of us. We're with you here in this match. And we do the same thing when we look to the world to support us in settling Christian matters. If you're, non -Christian if you're in a dispute with another Christian and your non-Christian family supports your position or your non-Christian friends agree with you, um, or even you find people on the internet who agree with you. You will always find people on the internet who agree with you. If the world out there is supporting you and your position in this dispute, then you do have to ask if Jesus would actually agree with you. If you're seeking the wisdom of the world rather than wisdom of God. So what do you do? Well, that brings us to our second question. Have a look at verse 7. Uh, verse 7, Paul says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you, have not, uh, means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? <clears throat> now, if you're anything like me, you have a good list of ways to answer that question, yeah? Why not be wronged or cheated? Well, I'll tell you why. Um, because it's not fair to be wronged or cheated. Because it's not just. Because I have my rights. And if I don't stand up for myself, then who will stand up for me? Or perhaps the most common, if I don't get justice, then that thing that gives me security and satisfaction in my life, that thing will be taken away from me. That's why it, I shouldn't be wronged. That's why I won't be cheated. As 21st century individualists, we champion our, champion our rights as supreme to the expense of everything and everyone else. But Jesus, Jesus actually challenged this idea in Matthew chapter 5. If we go to the next slide, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, You've heard it said 
Sorry, you have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist any evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. Jesus calls those who belong to him to give up our rights for the sake of others. Why? Because this is not the wisdom of the world. This is not the wisdom of 21st century individualists. This is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom of the cross. So friends, tonight, I want you to think about the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, when Jesus went to the cross, did Jesus win victory over sin and death by asserting his own self-importance? No. By using his own self-interests or his power or his own rights? Of course he didn't. See, at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that he gave up his self-interests. He gave up his power and he gave up his rights as he willingly submitted to the will of God the Father. And don't be fooled. The cross is not a defeat. The cross is a victory. Because when Jesus went to the cross out of self-sacrificial love for us, he shed his blood which paid for our sin, that brings us true forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That was a victory, not a defeat, which means the wisdom of the cross says being wronged and cheated today is not a defeat, but it's to imitate Jesus Christ. Um, When I was 18, as a new Christian, I stole a motorbike. Uh, well, I didn't exactly steal it. Let me explain. This is it on the, on the side there, Kawasaki ZZR 250, one of the 750, but, you know, 250 was good. Um, when I was 18 and I first became a Christian, um, uh, one of the guys I went to church with sold me his motorbike, a guy called Mike. Mike and I were great friends. We went to church together. We were in Bible study together. Um, I gave Mike a down payment and told him that I would pay for the rest of it over the next year. The problem is... I forgot. Okay, I didn't steal it. I just forgot to pay him. I registered the bike in my name. I rode it around for six months. Uh, I just forgot to pay him. But instead of taking this matter to the police, Mike chatted to some mature Christians at church. And then he came and chatted to me. He said, Chris, you owe me this great debt. And I know that you can't pay it. But to teach you that Jesus paid the debt which you cannot pay and none of us can pay, I will cancel this debt that you owe me. You see, Mike was prepared to be wronged and cheated out of love for a Christian brother, but more importantly, for the sake of Jesus. Now, don't worry, six months later, I sold a bunch of stuff and I paid for it, so it was okay. Um, It did teach me a lot of things. It taught me that I shouldn't borrow money from other people at church and probably that I should have money before I go and buy something. That's a good lesson to learn. But most importantly, it taught me about what Jesus had paid for me and the debt that he had cancelled on my behalf. Friends, this is the wisdom of the cross. 
This is the wisdom of the cross as two Christian brother, as a Christian brother and another brother have a dispute and need to settle it. Not to take it to court, but to seek the wisdom from older and godly Christian men and women and then to address it in God's family. And we need to admit that this is a challenging word. I mean, it's a challenging word because, one, it makes us feel uncomfortable. It makes uncomfortable that we might have to give up something that we feel like we deserve and have the right to have. It also makes us uncomfortable because something that we deserve might be taken from us. I guess the question is, where is the line? It's one of the questions that comes out of the passage as we think about this and apply it to our life. I mean, where is the line that you draw in being prepared to be wronged and cheated? Where's that line that you're not prepared to cross? So that's the question I have for you. It's an easy one. Um, uh, Remember I warned you that there'd be a question at the beginning. Well, here's the question for you. Turn to the person next to you and ask them. If uh, the wisdom of the cross says that we should be prepared to be wronged and cheated, where's the line that we draw? Where's the line that we go no further? I'll give you a minute. Chat to the person next to you. Okay, that's your minutes, please. You can chat more about that over pizza, but um, I might jump in here to get us back together. Where is the line? Uh, the difficult thing in the passage, if you notice that, is that, G, uh, that Paul doesn't say. Like, Paul doesn't give us five steps to conflict resolution. Paul doesn't tell us how to have a win-win-win scenario out of this. Paul doesn't even give us a dollar figure, you know. Um, be prepared to be uh, wronged and cheated for this amount of money, but not this amount of money. It, maybe it'd be easier if he did. I tell you, uh, so two quick things. First, um, if it causes us or those in our family physical harm, being wronged and cheated... Uh, or if it's criminal activity, then I think we need to take that to the authorities. Um, the second thing I would say is, um, I take it this is one of the reasons why God gives us godly, mature people in our church. That is, where is the line? Well, I take it this is a matter that we take to our Christian brothers and sisters and ask them. Um, like, not as an announcement in church, right? Not like a... Okay, hi, name's Chris. I've got an issue with, um, with Matt. Yeah, I broke his saxophone. Sorry, Matt. Uh, can you tell me, you know, who's got, should he be wronged or cheated? Can I get away with it? <laughs> uh, cast your votes now. Not like that. Um, but rather that we would find godly Christian people in our church family and seek their advice. Um, which is important for me to say because I, I'm not someone who can give legal advice. Like, legally, I can't do that, and I won't do that. Um, I can give you spiritual advice, give you wisdom um, in how we might live that kind of stuff out. Um, But there are people in our church who are better equipped than me to give you financial advice or even maybe to help you in legal matters. Um, And our church has been thoroughly blessed with godly Christian mature people who would love to chat to you about something and help you to work that through. I'd love to pray with you as you seek that matter. I guess the, the other question is, 
Does that mean people who cheat and do wrong to other Christians get away scot-free? So other side of the coin, right? Does this mean that all Christians need to be prepared to wrong and cheated and those who do the wronging and cheating can just have a field day and do whatever they want? Uh, Our last question helps us to answer that. Have a look at verse 9. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived that neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over his people in his creation. But it's not just a future reality. Paul doesn't say the kingdom of heaven here. He's speaking about the kingdom of God. It's one that we experience today. It's both a promised reality and one that we experience today. Maybe you've heard of it being called the now but not yet. You see, as we trust Jesus and repent of our sin, we're made members of God's kingdom and we're called to live under his rule. Now, the Corinthians thought that freedom in Christ meant freedom to keep on sinning. But freedom in Christ is not freedom to keep on sinning. Freedom in Christ is freedom to have a relationship with God. It's freedom to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's freedom to experience life in his kingdom the way that God intended. And so the list of what Paul has given us in verse 9 is the way that things that God has not intended to be. Which means the warning is clear that those who persist in unrepentant sin, these sins or any other, cannot be assured of their place in God's kingdom. Now, it's not that salvation is taken away. It's an inheritance. You can't unearn an inheritance. But the feeling of assurance and the closeness with God will diminish if we continue in unrepentant sin, which means we need to take sin seriously. What does this look like for people who are wrong or cheat other Christians? Well, we looked at this last week, didn't we? When people who have unrepentant sin in a church, uh, and it can grow like yeast through dough. And so Paul, uh, we'll have a look at um, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. It's just at the end of the chapter, just before chapter 6. He says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? We're not to judge those outside the church. That is, we're not to condemn the world. The time for that is not now. And that is God's role. That's God's responsibility to do that. But we have given a position within God's church to judge people in God's church. That is to hold up their life against God's word. And if they continue in unrepentant sin, Paul's instruction is that we should separate them from God's people, not so that we may seem more holy than them or that we may convince ourselves that we are right, but so they may turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, That's not a regular thing that happens in churches. I mean, this is not a thing that happens every year. 
doesn't happen every five years. In my experience, it probably happens once a decade. That is, when someone is caught, when someone confesses to unrepentant sin and is asked to take their sin seriously, um, or otherwise they may have to leave. But the reason why we do it is so that God's people here on earth may be a picture of God's kingdom. That is, what God has promised in the future and what we experience today, so those things match. But I take it as we read through this list, uh, the first half of the list is the most difficult. Yeah? That in verse 9, the sins to do with sex, sexual sin. I take it that's difficult for us to read because maybe it's our past, maybe it's something we struggle with today, or maybe it's the pressure on society to change a certain view. So three things quickly tonight. First, God is not anti-sex. The Bible is clear that God designed sex to be enjoyed within a marriage of one man and one woman. Second, Um, You'll notice in that list that Paul makes no distinction between these sexual sins in particular. Sexual immorality, adultery, men who have sex with men, there's no distinction. That is, when someone has heterosexual attraction or same-sex attraction, when they have faith in Jesus, they both must submit their expectations of sexual practice under God, and to submit to him as they seek to live in his kingdom. Which means sexual sin is not unforgivable sin, and sexual sin doesn't exclude us from God's kingdom. People with both heterosexual attraction and same-sex attraction can enjoy the blessings of God's kingdom as long as they seek to live under his rule. Um. If this is God's expectation for his kingdom, I guess the question is, how can people with this in their past or those who struggle with it today, how can they expect to be in God's kingdom? Through Jesus Christ. Have a look at verse 11. And this is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Paul finishes this section with most wonderful words of reassurance. And friends, these are beautiful words. Take these upon yourself if you are someone who trusts in Jesus tonight. That is what some of you were. If these sins exclude us from God's heaven, how might we we have any hope to enter? It's through the good news of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Which means the Corinthian church is filled with these people. Filled with these people who that was their story and they turned to Jesus Christ. And our church is the same. I won't ask you to put your hand up, that'd be really awkward. But if I was to do that, I'm sure that there'd be many people here tonight that this is their story as they came to know Jesus And the great confidence that we have is not anything that we do to make us morally right um, uh, or impressive in God's eyes, but what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. 
So I want to give you a really visceral illustration to think about this. So think for a moment that you are this vase. Okay, I know that you are better looking than this vase, but humor me for a moment. You are this vase. Um, And this is the way that God created us to be. That is, free from sin and in a relationship with him. But we have listened to the sinful desires of our own hearts. We have sinned. And so we are unrighteous as we stand before God. Because of our sin, we have no place in his kingdom and can't expect to be, ent- to be accepted into his heaven. And so God, out of his great love for us, sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we could be forgiven of our sin and have the promise of eternal life. And when we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sin, what does verse 11 say? He washes us. That is, he washes us from sin. He sanctifies us. He makes us holy and he justifies us. He declares us to be righteous in his sight so that God has forgiven us of our sin and purified us from unrighteousness. Friends, for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is how he sees you. And so, why would we want to go back to that other way of living? I mean, the confidence that we have in Jesus Christ and his grace, that even if we were to sin again and ask him to forgive us again, God can freely forgive us because a punishment has been completely taken by him. Friends, as God's family, as people in God's kingdom, we need to take sin seriously because he has forgiven us of our sin and washed us and cleansed us. So just to finish with, tonight Paul has talked to us about what it means to live a transformed life. That is, if we have disputes with Christians, that we are capable of settling them amongst ourselves And sometimes we need to be prepared to be wrong or cheated because that imitates Jesus Christ. And also we need to take sin seriously so that brothers and sisters in Christ don't continue to be wronged or cheated. And we're to do this in faithful obedience to God as we wait for his son to return.